0: Hello, and welcome to our new podcast, Show Me Archaeology. This podcast seeks to share archaeological work that helps us better understand and connect with the people and places that have shaped our society today. I'm your host, Missouri Humanities Archaeologist Aaron Whitson. is an archaeologist who's worked since August 2019 for an archaeological contract firm called Fever River Research. She's received her bachelor's degree in anthropology in 2011 and an all-but-thesis master's degree in historical archaeology in 2014 at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She got her master's degree in cultural resource management through Adams State University in Colorado in 2021. Congrats! Thank you. Um, Chelsea has extensive experience in both prehistoric and historic archaeological survey in all phases, laboratory analysis, archival research, and working with tricky materials such as historic ceramics and textiles. When she's not in the field or lab doing archaeology, Chelsea performs musically on her harp, professionally, which is wild. Um <laughs> And she, and it shows that she's wildly talented across the board. Oh, um, thank she'll, you. she'll be talking with us today about the work she's done while working with Fever River Research on the site of a house or houses that were burned in the Springfield, Illinois race riot of 1908. Welcome, Chelsea. Thanks for spending time and energy with us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. No, this is fantastic. <laughs>
0: Before we begin diving into your project, would you talk with us a bit about what historical archaeology is? Because I think you're our first. Oh, Um, excellent. And how, I mean, what's your definition of it? Because we all define historical archaeology differently, those of us who practice.
1: Sure. Um, I know historic archaeology is going to be different depending on what continent and country that you're on. Um, Generally here in uh in north america we view historic archaeology as kind of that contact the european contact um and when the written record really kind of hit this country um everything before that before the written record is going to be more of your prehistoric uh element and so i tend to focus um on this balance between historical record where you can do heavy research, um, where you can find definitive names and and places and titles and all of the things that we have written down. um, and we put that in conjunction with the archeological record, being able to tie that in and maybe fill in some holes that history has left out, um, or even just confirming what the history, um, has already stated. And so that's kind of where, that's where we kind of do that balance. And I love that aspect of it. So
0: that's wonderful. Um... I've, I have heard, um, some unnamed archaeologists, uh, question in the past, um, distant past about why do we need historical archaeology? We've got written records. Um, do you have an answer for that for anyone who might be wondering that?
1: Absolutely. So particularly with a project that we're going to discuss here shortly, um, you have the historical record can be pretty biased. Um, it's written by the winners, um, the elite, the wealthy, the people who feel that their history is worth ri- writing about, and we are all as humans inherently biased um, with the way that we write. And it sometimes then will probably not give the, the greatest of light on some groups, um, particularly marginalized groups who may not have the, the funds or the opportunity to be able to get their history written down. And so if you've got those biases um, in the historical record, archaeology then can sometimes change for the better those kind of history inaccuracies. And being able to delve into that and fix the written record um, is a huge opportunity and it's very rewarding to be able to sit there and go you know you say one thing in the history in the history books and then find out that well that wasn't exactly quite true. And it's sometimes better, sometimes it's not, you know, but it's being able to correct those inaccuracies is probably the most rewarding thing about historical archaeology.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic. I love it. And I love I love the answer because you're right. I mean, there are a lot of things that people don't write about, you know, um, when I usually talk to people about it, usually. Usually, you know, I, I talk about, oh, yeah, you know, we might know that someone's got a refrigerator in their house because we've got the re- the um, the written records that say, mm-hmm. yes, we bought this or whatever. But we don't know where they're putting it in their house. We don't know what that might mean about the things that they're thinking or the way they're, you know, looking at their world. So, I mean, I think your answer is fabulous for for laying that out. So thank you. Um, can you explain what contract archaeology is? Because I, I don't know that a lot of people... You know, when they think archaeology. They think Indiana Jones. They think teaching or, or schools or things like that. Very rarely do I think, you know, contracts sorts of work. So what what does that mean?
1: Well, no, that's, that's a really good point because, yeah, Indiana Jones is probably the face of what archaeology means for the general public, either that or they bring up dinosaurs, and <laughs> that's unfortunately not correct either, and for contract archaeologists, we, um, particularly with our firm, um, we get a lot of, particularly state projects, federal projects, where they have to do any kind of construction, um, they are required to have archaeologists come in, um, and not all the time, but, uh, generally you have, the archeologists will then do some kind of historical, um, research. If anything in the written record will say that there were, you know, houses, um, plots of land or anything that was there, um, previously documented, um, that may be impacted by this new building structure or whatever. Um, and so the archeologists will then either determine at that time, um, Based on doing the preliminary research, whether or not there needs to be further action, archaeology needs to actually occur, or um, or maybe it doesn't. Um, sometimes that research will show that hey, no, this 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 there is no sites there that we need to worry about. Um, But a lot of the times, especially if you're working like in a downtown of a city, which is where I primarily work, um, you're going to find a lot, I mean, the whole downtown area had houses, um, or businesses. And so you can't throw a stone without finding, you know, any kind of foundations or something like that. And so you having that research, um, come in first really helps then those state and federal projects then move along so that they're not negatively impacting a site. Um, And maybe we can get them to shift wherever that project is going to be, if they are going to fully impact a site that uh, we don't really want them to impact.
0: Thanks. That's a really great description of what contract archaeology is. Um, So, I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit that you have been working Typically in an urban environment, are there issues? So it's again, it's not like Indiana Jones. We're talking (laughs) here. We're talking downtown in a city. Are there things that you have to watch out for when you're going in the field, or be prepared to encounter? Or
1: absolutely. Um, we are because we are downtown. We do have a lot of public interaction. Um, people just walking down the street, seeing the signs that we've put up to help navigate them when they see that there's an archaeological site going on um, because most people don't think about that. Um, so we have a lot of public interaction discussing what it is that we do. Um, there is a lot of communication between the State Historic Preservation Office, um, the the head company that is doing the major project, that's actually the one who's funding the construction um, who need us to come in. So there is a lot of constant communication making sure that we're hitting deadlines. Uh, because sometimes you've got backhoes just right at your back door, ready to kind of <laughs> move you along, and we do have to keep within a time frame too. Um, unlike with academic archaeology, where you can really take your time and it is about learning the process, and that is there for a teaching moment. In contract archaeology, um, you are you are structured by your schedule, mm-hmm. and so you've got to be able to be efficient and you know, keeping the crew moving along so that you can actually reach those deadlines.
0: Do you find I mean like cities are not clean places and you know, when they knock buildings down or you you're you know, digging through fill dirt or something like that, that it's probably not always the safest. I mean, I assume that you're up on your tetanus shots and you're watching for Oh,
1: absolutely. Like, all
0: sorts of things
1: absolutely and so we do work um at the beginning usually before we do any kind of a um a fa- a full phase 3 mitigation um we do have you know backhoes and big heavy machinery coming in helping us out and so we have to always be watching for you know keeping our distance and uh and and making sure that we're up definitely on tetanus shots you know it it has been known to happen where you step on a nail and mm-hmm. You know, that's not exactly the most fun experience Um, or stepping on the shovel the wrong way. So you always want to follow all of the rules on setting your equipment down or storing it in the right way, Um, keeping all of your stuff locked up. You know, we don't we don't just leave all of our equipment lying around. We have to keep we have gates around all of our projects um, so that we can keep ourselves safe, um, you know, keep the public safe because we don't want them coming near the open site because they're not familiar with walking around on an archeology span site. So we kind of keep them back behind the fence. We'll talk to them from there. Um, that way they can see it, but not be in it and don't have to worry about anybody tripping and hurting themselves. But yes, um, the project we're working on currently, they are in the heavy throes of construction on either side of us, um, building up, um, I guess this is probably just the best segue right into the project. So, um, a few years back, uh, Springfield, Illinois, um, the Federal Railroad Association wanted to consolidate all of the railroads, um, within Springfield, make it a little bit more streamlined, build a transportation center. And so my firm, though I wasn't a part of it then at this point, did the archaeological research on looking, um, looking on, um, the, the miles that stretch through Springfield about, um, you know, what would be possibly impacted by the consolidation of this railroad. Now this has been around the railroad has been around since the, you know, the mid eight uh, 19th century. So there's been a lot of work that was brought to Springfield because of that. And there's continually to be big work. And so we had established, um, that there were quite a few usable segments along that rail track, and we have done most of the excavations on those viable sites along the track and, and have completed the archaeology and all of those smaller segments. Um, we are now back into what we call our usable segment three, and that has the really significant site, the one that has gotten everybody talking um around Springfield, and that is the um Five burned houses on the west side of our 10th Street corridor, and then two on the east side. Um, all of those had been burned during the 1908 race riot.
0: So, um, could you explain? So that was going to be my next, you know. Oh, perfect. Could, you, could you could you tell us a little bit about the history of this? Because I feel like the history um, to understand your project and, and what you've done with your research, you have to get that background. Right? absolutely
1: so to talk more about like what happened in the race riot from yeah.
0: 1908
1: so in august um 15th of 1908 there was um a black gentleman who was accused of raping a white woman falsely mind you as per usual unfortunately um, him and one other gentleman um another black gentleman who was accused of murdering a white man they were both um in jail waiting for trial and there was you know, it's a hot summer day and there was some just anger building up and there was a white mob that wanted to enact their own justice on these men. And the two men were secreted out in a vehicle um, owned by Mr. Loper and they got out, but the mob was not happy about it. And so they systematically worked through um, two areas which were predominantly black areas. One was the levee district which was a series of businesses that were all black owned and operated. And then the neighborhood, um, the residential neighborhood that they derogatorily determined, they called it the badlands and they burned over 40 businesses and homes. And we don't know how many people just escaped out of Springfield and didn't come back. Those records aren't available to us. Um, Thankfully, only, um, only two black men died. I mean, unfortunately, two black men died, but thankfully it wasn't bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of homes were just, they were just systematically destroyed. The worst part about it is that as they were, as the white mob was going through, they were telling white residents to hang white handkerchiefs outside their door so they knew a white person lived there so that they would bypass the house. And then as the houses were burning of these black residences and the firefighters were coming in and trying to hose it down to stop the blaze, the white mob was cutting the hoses to stop the water from being able to get there. And the only reason why this mob dispersed was because the militia came in and and, and stopped this. So these houses were burned, people were fleeing we don't have a heavy historical record of all those people who were impacted by this race, riot. We know the names of the, of the two men who died. We know the names of the two men who
0: escaped and were falsely accused. And um, they escaped with police help, right? They were taken to a different place to be. Helped. They were away. They're yes, yes
1: yeah. there's are away Now they did still stand trial. Um, and didn't go well for, for, uh, for one of them. Um, but we don't know the names of all of, these, of the rest of the people. We know quite a few of the names of the white rioters. And I don't think they even deserve to have their names in the historical record anymore. But that is also showing that inherent bias, you know, of, of the historical record. Um, and so these houses of them were just left as vacant lots for 20 years. 15 years. Wow. just. They like pushed warning. all of the, yeah, they just pushed all the burned stuff into the center of the houses and just left them open until later on a lumber yard was built on top of it. But, um, it's, and then they were left completely encapsulated. It was later on, um, the lumber yard only had piers, so it didn't impact the site very much. And then it was later capped by a parking lot. And because of that parking lot, the integrity of the site was just incredible absolutely incredible so in 2014
0: a phase two project um you might want to explain what a phase two project is too
1: um a phase two project is just going to have us get an idea of the limits of our site um we'll strip the land back we will take a look at um if we have any foundations see if we've got integrity that will lead to potentially then for us to argue for a full phase three mitigation, full excavation of the entire site. So you're just taking um, a peek.
0: You're just, I'm sorry? You're just, just taking a peek with a phase two. You're just trying to see if there's anything there. And then right. phase three is the archaeology and, that people imagine.
1: Absolutely. Gotcha. So we we strip it back. It's very simple. It was stripped back. We saw that we had the foundations of all five houses um, on this west side of the, of the railroad. Um, all five houses were there. The, um, we did two little test units um, that would eventually get put into our grid for our big full mitigation um, just to see what the integrity within the houses then would be once we did that excavation and it was incredible It the amount of artifacts in our fire layer from the burn from that 1908 race riot is so clear in our profiles and you're looking at plates and cups and every single thing that would have just been in this house had just been burned and left there. So we knew that we had the integrity. We knew that we would be able to learn so much from this. And we also knew that the right of way then for this railroad project was going to be fully impacting the entirety of these houses. And so a lot of voices came up um, that were just champion, um, championing the um, the whole entire project. So we had the involvement of the NAACP. And I should note that the direct result of this race riot, the 1908 race riot, was the formation of the NAACP nationwide. So because of the race riot here in Springfield, Illinois, the home of Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, six months later on the... Uh, celebrated on the birth of Abraham Lincoln in 1909 was the formation of the national NAACP. So it was a huge deal. Most people don't know that about the Springfield race riot, but since then, so we've got the NAACP is involved with this. Um, We've got um, reports going out to the national park service and we are making it eligible then for, Inclusion in the National Park Service on the National Register of Historic Places. And because of that, then, the Federal Railroad Association shifted the right-of-way east to protect the majority of these houses. And there will eventually become, you know, a memorial will go on those places that are still being preserved. So we then, since we knew that that was happening... We still needed to excavate a portion of the houses because it was going to be impacted by the new ex- the railroad expansion, consolidation, excuse me. Um, but then we needed to do full mitigation. So in 2019, I was brought in then as, um, at the time, just a tech, and we started the full mitigation of these five houses. One of the best summers of my life. <laughs> So we tend to excavate um, in a checkerboard fashion. So we do alternating units, um, little one meter by two meter units, and we take those down and we excavate everything that's coming out of it. We kind of broke it into three categories are everything post-fire, so everything after the race riot, our race riot, our fire zone, and then everything pre-fire. So we've that, we're pulling up these artifacts, we're excavating in order, and the items and the understanding of these people's lives as we're excavating is just, it's rewriting the history books for us. There's really only one text, um, about the race riot. That is the, that is the forerunner in terms of understanding the race riot from 1908. It's a history textbook and it is definitely something that we've all read. And I definitely recommend, um, reading, but, what the newspapers were saying at the time was that this community deserved it. They were asking for it. They were living in huts and shanties, and it was just an area that was just filled with debauchery and, and vice. And if you go into that area, you're just going to get drawn down into this spiral of just ugliness, and that there's no reason for us to even be giving any... Voice to this riot anymore because it was essentially forgotten about. Then after the race riot happened, they're like, mm, "It happened. They deserved it. Time to move on." But these these people's lives were completely uprooted. Everything that they owned was burned to ash. Well, they said, "Well, they don't own much, so why would we have to worry about it?" That's not what the archaeology is telling us. The archaeology is telling us that these people were workers. They were politically minded. They were literate. They were religious. They were civil servants. You know, some of them were a part of the military. They were just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. But the history doesn't tell you that.
0: I mean, that's, it's powerful stuff. How, how, So I I work with Cherokee removal, um, sorts of sites. And I, I see that same whenever you get, um, government and state sponsored violence against native folks, we see, um, sort of a similar social amnesia, I guess. Um, I guess my first question is how do you, are you guys actively combating that? And are, have, are you having to confront this? communities the white communities around it cuz i'm sure the black communities remember these stories i'm sure that you know the the ruins that were left there as a visible scar in the landscape are probably one of those things as a hey like take note sort of thing but you know the people the white folks who weren't directly involved with it wouldn't you know if, if someone's not telling them those stories they're not going to know uh-huh. um so did you have reactions from the communities around you that that you know shocked you surprised you or could you
1: i think generally
0: you
1: know i know generally that the the reaction as we started doing the excavations was very positive Mm -hmm. that a lot of people who they all expressed surprise they're like i never knew that this existed Mm -hmm. when i introduced myself around town to new people um and I say that I'm an archaeologist and they're like oh there's archaeology in Springfield like nobody (laughs) knows about that and then when I tell them what I'm working on they go wait Springfield had a race right here no (laughs) they don't teach it in schools Mm -hmm. there's so many that aren't aware of other race rights in in the country Tulsa Mm -hmm. Is being one of the big ones that of course comes to mind. And thankfully, we've got archaeology coming out of that that is helping rewrite that those history books as well. There's only been maybe once or twice that I've had somebody say to me, Well, why don't you just leave that in the ground? It's done. It happened. Mm-hmm. That doesn't affect me at all. I didn't do it. Yeah. And I find that to be a very closed-minded. I, ideology because that applies it's so relevant with everything that is going on today yeah that if we're going to continue to f- to forget that riots happened then that's already negating riots that are happening now for also mm-hmm. other equal rights that we are also not having okay. so it's generally been very positive thankfully
0: that's that's fantastic i mean like anytime you start getting into you know relationships that are contentious in the past things could go very quickly downhill but it sounds like this has been good for the community it's a, a place for people to have conversations that probably needed to happen years ago um yes. so what about your work with this i mean so we talked at the beginning about some of those tricky things that that you're pretty good at with ceramics and textiles and stuff they're not a ton of archaeologists that I know of that deal with textiles very frequently. Um, Could you explain why that's kind of, whenever you explain your project to some of us who understand the world of archaeology, we go, whoa, 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 you've got textiles. Um, Can you explain why that's kind of a thing and what you found here?
1: Absolutely. So I know in every history class and archaeology class that you that you take in college and, and beyond the majority of artifacts that are discussed are going to be your ceramics your glass your pottery your points your all of those that are made of very hardy materials and because of the fact of the nature of textiles generally especially before 1911 are made from natural materials. And those, unfortunately, degrade in the ground. Mm -hmm. And you usually only find textile fragments in places that are very dry, where preservation is you know helps you have it be a little bit higher you think of egypt and the mummies wrapped mm-hmm. in their you know in all of their cloth and all of that still intact and have seeming virtually untouched after thousands of years you don't usually get that mm-hmm. um in the midwest
0: <laughs> east both states are pretty wet we, we get a lot of uh yeah things rot in the soil pretty quickly
1: absolutely very quickly and until so when I brought up 1911 1911 was when um you were introduced to the first synthetic fabric um from then on you've got all of these other textiles that now have come out that can handle a little bit longer in the soil than these natural ones so you're dealing with cotton Mm -hmm. and wool and linen flax um and those kind of materials they degrade over time and so especially in an instance like this where we're working in a burned household you don't expect to find textiles and so we were in excavating and uh we've labeled these houses a b c d and e Keeps it. Very simply, okay. it makes it easy. Yeah. So within House E, that was the house that we had um, the most to excavate. It also had a cellar. Um, so everything collapsed down into that cellar, which I'd like to think helped preserve some of it a little bit more. Um, underneath, we had two different contexts. Um, on one side, we had this marble slab that came from the top of a, of a dresser. And underneath that marble slab, which, of course, was heavily burned and fragmented, um, we had a bundle, a stacked bit of charred textiles that when we're pulling this out of the ground, it's, you know, four or five inches thick, and it's just black.
0: Are we talking dresses? Are these shirts? What what sorts of t- At the time, we didn't know. Uh-huh. So and- when you found it, I mean, what was your reaction? Because. Whoa. Oh, we
1: were we were over the moon. <laughs> the fact that we saw that, we knew that it was a marble top to a dresser. We're like, okay, what's underneath this? <laughs> and then the fact that we're pulling out just this clump of fabric that we're being very gentle with, pulling this out as best we can. And we get that back to our lab and we just kind of get it isolated for a minute. But then just shortly thereafter, we're in another context where we're finding another clump of fabric this time we knew that it was within um, the remnants of a trunk. Just, you know, a big trunk that you would have had like at the, you know, base of your bed now, you know, those historic steamer engine, big big trunks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We got more fabrics out of that among a ton of other things, which I'll get to in a minute. But so we get this back to the lab. We're staring at this, trying to understand exactly how it is that we go about separating it to we clean it. It's, it's black, it's sooty. It is, you breathe on it and it is going to poof away. So we're having to be extremely careful. And because we don't have very often an opportunity to deal with textiles out of the archeological record, we needed to go about this differently. So we reached out um, to Dr. Carmen Keist from Bradley university in Illinois and she has a PhD in apparel merchandising and she specializes in historic fabrics. So we brought her down here and she and I worked hand in hand for probably six months, figuring out how to pull these apart, pulling some cleaning samples. If we have the opportunity to maybe get these clean, to get the soot off of them, that didn't work by the way. It's <laughs> um, good to know. But though. Yeah. We pulled these apart with tweezers And we have these then separated by, um, we started big and went small then. So things that would jump out at us, we had embroidery, we had seams, we're having cuffs of sleeves and the fabrics are all different. And so being able to separate all of those out from each other, we managed to get it all separated. We did yarn counting. We had a little magnifying glass and we're counting the warp and the wefts, just your, your weaves. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much from Carmen being able to sit down and then take this information that if it's got this kind of warp and weft count, then it's probably going to lean towards this type of fabric. And we managed to, in the dresser, we managed to separate. It's all cotton clothing. It's, Generally, all but one was definitively labeled female clothing. We had shirts. We had blouses. We had petticoats. We had skirts. We had a full dress. We had an inside-out stocking. Uh It's folded up inside-out and placed in there. And not only were we able to determine what kind of clothing we're looking at, which was based on Um, seam patterns um, whether it was hand stitched or if it was stitched on a machine or if it was um, what we call ready made which would have been a purchase like right out of a magazine Um, being able to learn those kind of traits in textiles I never figured I would have been able to do this with burned fragments which we had over 1200 of these that are generally only about Five inches in size, oh, sometimes wow. smaller.
2: Wow.
1: The dresser contained all women's clothing. I mean, the one that was kind of we couldn't definitively determine the gender. I think we can argue that that one <laughs> probably leans itself towards a female, <laughs> female kidding. artful clothing. Um, all cotton, like I said, but multiple outfits. Mm-hmm. Multiple outfits that are lightweight cotton something a woman's gonna a woman is going to wear in the middle of summer on a hot day uh-huh. the historical records is there in states that a lot of these people only had you know the clothes on their back ever I'm talking about after the ride I'm talking about just generally they say you know they don't have anything they don't have anything worth worthy of value and the fact that we have this dresser full of clothing that was just the summer wear. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the trunk and the trunk contained not just women's clothing, but also men's clothing, older clothing. You had our first items that are made of silk and Mm -hmm. wool and your winter wear. You had, we had a union suit, which would have been your underwear that was fleece lined and a men, two men's suit vests, a full silk dress that may, I mean, it, and those date back to, they're an older style, so it's dating to about 1880, 1890. And because you can follow the fashion in the history books. Now, the history books don't have definitive breakdowns of a Black community's mm-hmm. fashion, because they're not going to promote that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But those fashions are still being used by marginalized communities. This dress may have been a wedding dress. It may have belonged to a parent. Um, it's a keepsake, if anything, or it's you know the fancy dress to wear to church. Um, the men's clothing is put away. On top of those clothing that we found, we also found um, burned paper that we know had, we were just barely able to read what was on these tiny little fragments. I'm talking the size of a quarter. Oh, geez. One of them's a devotional
2: because it, it
1: references, um, the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And then it says, it's got him in capital letter or in the capital H. Um, and so though it references an, you know, a, a, a chapter and, and verse within the Bible, we're thinking it's probably a devotional. Mm-hmm. We also found a newspaper that we were able to determine the exact date. It was, um, the newspaper is called the Topeka Plain Dealer. And this is the first instance. Um, this dates from 1905. It's the first instance of any artifact coming out of these houses that would indicate a race.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we all, we, we know that race is a social construct and has nothing to do with people yeah. really. But this was the first artifact that we found that historically, white readers would not be reading it because it was a black edited newspaper mm-hmm. based out of Kansas wow. and it was indicating the first big page um, front page on this newspaper was um, was about political activism
0: well, I mean, and it shows so, that they're connected too I mean that's yes <laughs> that's absolutely bad. so
1: there was so much going on in that trunk too and there you know so uh, there was a cape there was um, a fur collar, and you're you're looking at such a wide variety of clothing. Um, that right there, just in the clothing, forget the rest of the artifacts in the house.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The clothing indicates that this person who lived in this house was not destitute.
2: Who
1: mm-hmm. wasn't. A laborer, either, because we didn't find any indication of heavier weighted fabrics like denim
2: mm-hmm.
1: or heavy tweed or anything like that. It was all lightweight fabrics. So it Something. shows
0: a fundamental misunderstanding, or a, you know, white folks aren't really understanding what they're talking about when they're talking about this community as being this really poor, very backwards group of people. <laughs> they're living. I mean. You know, even if she's got older stuff, you know, and is just keeping it around. I mean, that's still fancy stuff. She's got silk. That's. Absolutely.
1: I mean, she had a parasol. I mean, we had that textile, those textiles too, Mm -hmm. that I didn't quite understand. I was like, is this clothing? Is it not? We finally were able to determine that the way it was stitched was part of a parasol. So she had, you know, part of the fancy outfits. She had stored away like, the fur collar, the cape, the parasol—like she had all of the accoutrement to <laughs> wear to go out on a night and just look her best. Okay. Wow! And so we did, though at, at at first, in the when we started researching all of this, we didn't have a name to the person who lived in this house. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that somebody had um, had filed a claim for for lost items but it was not this person. So we were able to determine best that we know a woman named Betty Black. Um she was receiving the only thing that we have historically written about her in any in newspapers in in records whatever we have one newspaper article about her
2: mm-hmm. getting
1: married. Um and then she shows up one more time for being fined $3 for getting in an altercation with another woman. Mm -hmm. And then only in the city directories, um, it shows that she was receiving grocery aid up to September of 1907. Mm -hmm. So she was in the house at that address up to that point Mm -hmm. and was estranged from her husband. Um, he was about 15, 20 years older than her when they got married. Um, and we got plenty of record of him and mm-hmm. his things that he was doing. But it really indicated to us that, you know, this dresser only contained the woman's clothing. Mm-hmm. The trunk sure. contained some men's clothing. So that may have been his, mm-hmm. this strange husband who wasn't living in the household. Um, and I'd like to think that it was her
2: mm-hmm.
1: living in the house. Now, we don't have any record of her after the race riot, unfortunately. We don't know where she would have gone. Um, but there's no indication in Springfield that she, that she stuck around. So we're not entirely sure about that.
0: So no descendants to talk to and be like, Hey, what can you tell me about your great, great grandmother or anything? Not that that. we know of, no, but there have
1: been conversations, um, that people who remembered having conversations with people who were here Mm -hmm. during the riot, um, and that in the black community is well more talked about and it's more of a well yeah no of course that happened to them than it is in any other household um but no they weren't writing all of that down either
0: i mean so you know i see similar things with some of the stuff that i'm looking at with the Cherokee. you know like there's there's trauma that we're, we're talking about trauma here and At some point or, you know, at some level, I can completely understand people who just don't want to talk about it because it's just so heart-wrenching that, you know, Mm -hmm. you've you've just lost everything. And not just, you know, clothes and and furniture and things like that, but, you know, all the accoutrements of a life, you know, all of the things that they fought for, um, that they, you know, scrounged for, that they saved for, all of the things that they, you know that was sacred to them for whatever level, you know, all of us have things like that and we can't assume that these people are somehow different. Um, cause we're, you know, your work has shown that they're not, they they've got a lot of the same things that their, their white neighbors had. So, you know, that's, <laughs> to me, that's, that's the part that hurts, I guess. Um,
1: yeah. It's, there were, there were so many things that as I was reading that, when you read any of the, um, any of the historical record about the, the trauma and how it's glossed over Mm -hmm. historical records, like, oh, it just happens. And it's, it was, I find myself very angry. Yeah. The (laughs) further, further along that I read. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things I wanted to bring up because this was, um, very powerful for me, um, I I wrote a small section, uh, within my thesis about, about status, Mm -hmm. um, the status of the individuals who lived here, because I really do believe that the, the, the woman or people, um, who lived in these houses, um, they were striving for this middle-class respectability Mm. separate and apart from what the, obviously the, um, the newspapers were saying, um, and I had mentioned earlier about claims for personal property that people were filing right after the riot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of negativity and backlash coming from um, those who were, the ones who were supposed to be filing these claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the newspapers were saying that like black residents were grossly padding their, mm-hmm. their approximations of losses. That they, you know, if they were degenerates and deviants um, that these newspapers allege, they should not have been able, they should not have been claiming quality items such as, you know, clothing, nice clothing and furniture Mm -hmm. on there. Um, An example would be that there was a review, because every claim was reviewed for possible scamming. Um, There was a small claim um, under $100 where one editor complained The, uh, and the editor was writing this extremely sarcastically, uh, that the victims, quote, appear to have been well-dressed men and women, and nothing but the best was in their wardrobes. Mm-hmm. And all of that was said with such heavy derision, like, you know, how could they possibly be dressed nicely? <laughs> and though everything in the archaeological record is showing that that, you know, that that sarcasm all of that is false. Of course they were dressed nicely.
2: Mm.
1: Well, I say of course. Our archaeological research here is showing us yeah. that they were dressed nicely, that they had options. Mm. And there's, you know, there's no it's all lightweight. There's ruffles. We've got pleats. There's embellishments on all of this, like eyelet, um, eyelet lace um, fabric that is just heavily embroidered. That mm. kind of effort into looking nice it it allows to show us a a member of society who who does strive to represent herself well Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and if you're just a degenerate or a deviant or any other negative term that you want to throw out there um you don't put that much effort Mm -hmm. into your representation or your presentation
0: yeah and so I mean how did you doing what I do um is hard and I can only imagine the same is true for you I mean can you talk about how do you deal with the emotions that come with this like realizing oh my gosh I'm looking at what's left of someone's life that just, you know, their whole world just burned up in a heartbeat just because the color of their skin, how do you deal with with that?
1: Hard. It's very hard. <laughs> just like you said, it's it definitely was overwhelming at times. Um, as I'm pulling apart those textiles and finding, you know, pages of a notebook tucked in between with between the folds of those fabric. And one of them had a little drawing in pencil of a smiley face. (laughs) Um, I'll be honest. I cried when that, when that came out and was not expecting it. Mm -hmm. And I try not to take for granted every single day, the privilege that I have of working on this kind of a project.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I'm the first person to have touched some of these these items since, you know, since the riot had happened. You know, that I have and my company, we have a huge responsibility to be able to represent the truth as best that we can present it. Mm-hmm. Um and we are obligated
2: mm-hmm.
1: to represent that truth. And we are still working on that report because we are recognizing how important this work really is. And the textiles is just one mm-hmm. minuscule portion of it. You know, just to give you a quick highlight of some other things that we have found um, in our House B, we found military medals um, mm-hmm. that we found belonged to a gentleman named Robert Wright who fought in the Spanish American War at the turn of the century and was stationed in Cuba. He didn't see any action in Cuba, but when he came home, he saw more horror in his own hometown on his front step and was driven out of his own home than any action that he saw in the military he was part of a, um, an all black battalion. Um, I'm sure it was a lot more personal too. <laughs> it really was being able to find them the names of these people. And it's just anytime we found any kind of like a definitive name mm-hmm. was a day of celebration because that's one more person that we could pull out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. One more invisible voice that has just been lost to time and ignored for decades and over a century and being able to bring that up and go, Hey, these people were here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Here's their names. Repeat their names
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that we don't have this happen again. Yeah. And I know that is a mantra that is that is continuing even in present day when people sit there and will say, repeat their names so that we know and that they're not forgotten.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's it's overwhelming sometimes. <laughs>
0: But it's important. You know, you, you're right. I mean, that's, that's what this sort of archaeology is good for, is trying to find traces, even if you don't get their names. You know, you're, you're reminded very, very deeply um, that you're, you're looking at another human being's life. And, you know, we're all only here for a very short amount of time, and you're seeing a snippet of that person's life. And there's something powerful about that.
1: Absolutely. Um, That's the thing, is that in a lot of archaeological excavations that happen, you don't have this definitive timeline. mm -hmm. (laughs) That you know for a fact that these five, six centimeters of mm -hmm. plaster, charred fill... Was the course of a twelve-hour day, mm-hmm. and we know for a fact that this was that snapshot of their lives, and we have to handle that with a heavy amount of respect.
0: Have you? So you said that NAACP showed up or uh, at your site, right? Could you? Yes. Could you talk about that a second? And sure. What was that like?
1: Um, so we have. Um, our chapter of the NAACP, um, the president is, uh, Teresa Haley. And so she's been constantly in contact with us. Um, and, uh, and then the company above us, uh, Hanson, Mm -hmm. who's been the one who does the contracting for all of the, the rail work, um, she would bring out volunteers and we would, we would have days where we would just have volunteers, um, from the black community specifically. She worked very hard to get those who were part of the black community who may not also not know about their own history about it too. So she's helping get the word out. Mm. And we had a very heavy amount of public um, interaction. We had um, members because we are in the state capital of Illinois. So we did have members, um, our local senators and house representatives um, would come out to the site then too. And there's been a lot of interaction. This has been a very... High-profile um, excavation, which is unlike this, is not normal. <laughs> Just, I'm going to throw that out there. That is not normal for archaeology, really. <laughs> and so it was a it was a fantastic experience. We had a, we had an open house that allowed. Um, a lot of the public then could actually come into the site and see um, where we were on the excavations Mm -hmm. and how we were progressing through all of that and making sure that they were all wanting to make sure too, that we were respecting Mm -hmm. the history that we were pulling up out of the ground too, that we weren't just, you know, using it for publicity or anything like that, that no, we're actually here to just make sure we're telling the real story. And it's been, it's been so good that even a few years ago, um, don't remember the year. I apologize, but um, President Obama had come to Springfield, and they commemorated. I want to say it was in 1908 for the hundred-year anniversary of the race riot. Um, and there are markers up around the city that you can actually take the um, the tour, I guess, <laughs> of the of the route of the destruction that had happened on the race, right. And there are markers at each of those, and it will give you a little, um, a little snippet of the history about what happened in this location. And they are all, all over Springfield. Um, and so that, that level of public interaction is just unprecedented and it's fantastic. So we're hoping now that the next steps are going to be in the, in the coming years, um, the new transportation center is supposed to be up. Um, the railroad is supposed to be consolidated and be done. Um, and they're gonna hopefully be putting or they plan on putting a memorial on the site that has been preserved of these five houses. Mm-hmm. Now, we are also working on because they shifted the right of way. The other side of the rail was railroad was um, or the other side of the street was impacted there were two houses there that were also burned during the race ride. And we are actually actively excavating those this summer Wow. and working on that as we speak. Wow. There's been some pretty incredible stuff coming out of that too.
0: I can, I can only imagine. Jeez. Have you, have you gotten to have that experience where you like you watch someone else like take that? Oh, Oh wow. I'm handling someone's life. Like, that's powerful when it happens with us, but like you can sometimes tell when you're watching someone else, like the public, have that realization where they're like, you're, they're handling something and they're like, oh wait, this is something that someone ate a hundred years ago for lunch yeah. right before this happened. Oh my gosh! Did yes, you
1: absolutely. It's um, we have quite uh, a few of the because we've had different texts on on this on the site um coming and going depending on their available availability excuse me um and every single one of them
2: Mm
1: -hmm. particularly archaeologists who have been on other sites and they a lot of them have only really ever worked on prehistoric sites and nothing to this magnitude Mm -hmm. in terms of this full-blown excavation um and so for them when they pause and the excitement of when they found something that they're able to identify, because sometimes when it's burned, Mm -hmm. you can't readily identify what it is. And so when they know, Oh my gosh, this is, this is the entire rim lock doorknob from the, like a front door or a door that is just melted and corroded. And this just dropped where it was. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that. You can kind of see; just their minds are just blown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, something so simple can have such a huge impact. Mm-hmm.
0: What's what's going to happen with the artifacts now that you guys have recovered them and preserved what you could of them? Right,
1: um, they are going to be going to the Illinois State Museum. That's where they're prim- primarily going to be housed, mm-hmm. um, and then from there there is a lot of interest uh, to loan out some of the artifacts. Uh, The uh, Smithsonian has an interest. Um, Several of the local museums then as well, the African-American History Museum um, has an interest. And then the New Transportation Center is supposed to have um, a mural with, I'm not sure if it's going to have artifacts or if that's still in the works, but they are going to have some kind of... um, mural up there commemorating the work that had been done just across the across the street um to show that hey you know this was here and but there's a lot of interest across the across the nation that is wanting to have just a little piece of this
0: Mm -hmm. nice um all right so i mean is there anything that i haven't asked that that is important because there's a lot of different angles to this bad boy, and I- oh my goodness, we could be talking about this for days <laughs> and months. I have been
1: uh-huh. <laughs> talking sure. about it a lot. I give a lot of different presentations on it, and um, it's it's so much. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is that we just we can't let the conversation die. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing I think I just want to take out of this and that I appreciate so much their, your willingness to talk about this because it's it's been very rare that I have had an opportunity on an archaeological project that is so relevant to everything that's going on today mm-hmm. and that it is showing the direct correlation between history and now mm-hmm. and that history repeating itself and what can we learn from history and we got to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's going to take days and months to get into all of the, every little thing that we found in all of these houses and what it just means to say is just that it's just, these are everyday people. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, that's good too, though. I mean, the fact that there's so many things that you can talk about just means that you keep getting the opportunity to have those conversations that obviously need to happen. And, you know, what I found about archaeology is it's really hard to um, argue with the fact that you've got evidence right in front of you when you're talking about an atrocity of some sort right oh absolutely to say oh no that wasn't that bad when you're looking at like the burned remains of someone's home Um, the
1: thousands upon i mean even if it's just the the clumps of of melted window glass Mm -hmm. and the hundreds of thousands of nails coming out from that were nailed into the board's holding up the, you know, holding up the, the walls and the plaster and just those artifacts, just the simple architectural artifacts Mm -hmm. have such a profound impact that the fire burns so hot and so long. And that's all we got left and you can see it and you can touch it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I will ever have an experience like this ever again.
0: (laughs) So do you, do you intend to... I mean, there are so many other places like this across the United States that have histories that are very similar. Um, are there plans, or do you know of any other, you know, groups that are actively trying to do work like this? Because I know, you know, it, it's really hard to to do this in some cases, to, to seek these things out, because they're just a moment, you know? They don't mm-hmm. really... So it's hard to pin down places. But we know well, that this, they happen. Absolutely.
1: And so the... So we are, uh, as far as I know, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: we are the third archaeology of a race riot Mm -hmm. ever done.
2: Yeah.
1: And Tulsa being one of the, is a big one right now, actively happening. And that is a whole nother level of atrocity that I can't even fathom. Yeah. The only other one that I know of, it didn't have a, it was a different approach It was definitely approached with an archeology span mindset, but it was the, the Rosewood, um, Rosewood, Florida. Um, it was the Rosewood massacre and that one was done, uh, more of a mapping GIS, Mm -hmm. um, planning it out that way. And that was a fascinating, um, approach to that because they didn't have the opportunity to get onto the properties to do any kind of physical archeology. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, is, this has been a unique opportunity. If other opportunities were to pop up, I would love mm-hmm. to be there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and help with that kind of excavation. If excavation, even if it's just the research aspect, I'd love to be a part of it. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the many branches that is archaeology. You've got so many different things, that uh, approaches that you can go about to, to handle that. Even if there's no physical excavation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, part of the, let's rewrite that history get right this time um is let's do it i have not heard of any new projects um on excavations or archaeology on a race riot but Mm -hmm. that's not to say that that's not in the works
0: and happening right now sometimes you have to keep those things quiet just so that they are protected while you're doing it so i I absolutely yes yes and that in the event that someone wants to read more about your work or see any of your other presentations or anything like that, is there a place that they can go to, to read or that you could send to me like a, a free article or something that I could pass on?
1: Sure. Um, well, most of the the presentations that we've given on on this, which helps um, concisely <laughs> reduce the amount of reading that you would have to do would be some of our presentations. And that, if you just go to, um, if you just type into Google fever river research Mm -hmm. where the first thing that pops up and the website is illinoisarchaeology.com. Like that's, that's the website. Um, it's. And if you just explore the website, you'll find all of the other projects that we worked on too. The report is still, it's, it's getting there, (laughs) but it's it's been such a labor of love that that report is not out yet, but it's going to be a multi-volume set that each house is going to get its own volume, and then the conclusions with vignettes about um, people associated and living in these houses over the course of their entire um, their entire lives, so dating back to the early 19th century. Um, we we talk about more than just the race riot Mm -hmm. we also talk about the aftermath we also talk about the people who lived in those houses beforehand because we do have those artifacts too we do have the excavations completed because this was full Mm -hmm. archaeology we didn't just stop at the race riot we wanted we knew we had to go into everything um but then if you want more information about just um the textiles Mm -hmm. uh, i can send my, my thesis. I wrote my entire master's thesis on textiles and I would be more than willing to just share that with anybody who wants to read it. Um, so that's just a, you just email me, um, and I can send you the link. It's, it's big and I apologize, (laughs) but it's heavy amount of pictures because Mm -hmm. it's the only way that I'm going to be able to show you what it is that we found. Um, because in case Preserving these these textiles is very difficult. Um, we're still trying to figure out the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took so many pictures because I have a fear that one day that's all we're going to have left of it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's documentation, right? That's the best you can do. Right. I'd rather be redundant mm-hmm. and not need it.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: never <laughs> that way people can also see for themselves. You know that's that's kind of brilliant too. I like that. So that's very cool. Well, thank you very, very, very much for giving us time to talk with you about this today. It's been fantastic. Um, I really do appreciate it. Um, this
1: has been so much fun, Erin. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh,
0: if anyone is interested in hearing more um, information about archeology span and the jobs that people or projects that people have in the field, um, tune in to our next set of episodes and thanks.